of society. We can't deny that his influence has been cited as key to understanding the advance of capitalism, of democracy, of law, of liberty, and even one author gave him credit for the founding of America. <laughs> Michael Walzer said that Calvinism transformed political thought by focusing on the actions of saints rather than princes, which then in turn led to the modern understanding of citizenship. Walzer said that Calvin's view of individual conscience and vocation became the basis for, quote, the literal reforming of human society to the creation of a holy commonwealth in which conscientious activity would be encouraged, even required. Well, those conclusions certainly go beyond Calvin's ecclesiastical and theological influence, which in themselves were so significant that the old church historian Philip Schaff described Calvin as one of the foremost leaders in the history of Christianity. But applying this legacy, this revolutionary legacy, to the early 21st century has hardly been straightforward. In addition to critics who disagreed with Calvin's theology or its implications, his theological errors who seek his imprimatur for their approach to Christian living significantly differ from each other in those approaches. Today, only the remnants of Constantinian assumptions about establishing a Christian society are disappearing. Orthodox believers today, here in America too, are now a distinct minority and on the fringes of cultural relevance. And so whatsoever position one takes on the Calvinism that shaped our polities, few of us would doubt that political, social, and economic decision makers today are very ignorant of Calvin's historical influence and indifferent, if not altogether hostile, to its continued influence. So in that context, Schaefer's question, how should we then live, takes on very different dimensions. So in my address to you this morning, I'm not going to try to cover all the details of a debate that has generated its own body of literature. Also, with the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth, a whole new spate of books have come out, as you know. Much of the literature falling into two genres. One focusing on Calvin the churchman and theologian. The other focusing on Calvin the statesman or the worldview thinker. And the subject matter itself often being divided into two emphases and two audiences and even two styles of argument. Well, that just prompts the question, how many Calvins are there? And I'd like to suggest to you this morning, there's really only one Calvin. And few can really argue that he was dualistic in any way in his thinking. Rather, the secret of the revolutionary view of Calvin and the inner man Calvin lies in his concept of piety, personal piety and theology, which were really the foundation 
of all his revolutionary views. What I want to do with you in this hour is I want to show you as best I can how Calvin's worldview that the Christian faith does have implications for society at large, economics, politics, etc. How does that worldview relate to his piety? That piety that Calvin defines as, quote, reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. How does that relate? And that's the subtitle I was given to daily Christian living in a fallen world. So basically, I want to do three things with you. First, I want to survey Calvin's worldview within the framework of four schools of contemporary Calvinist thinking. And then secondly, I want to summarize Calvin's thinking about piety and the Christian life. And then thirdly, I'm going to offer you some conclusions that contribute to the present debate on how a revolutionary worldview and pietistic Christian living harmonize. First then, Calvin's worldview perspective. The concept of a worldview, terminology anyway, would have been unfamiliar to Calvin. Using the word worldview to denote a comprehensive explanation of reality actually has only become popular in the past 150 years. Since the time of the church fathers, people have debated how faith should be applied to questions involving the interpretation of the universe, ethics, and our place in it. But with the Enlightenment, the very questions being asked have been changed. In Calvin's time, the debates generally involved competing interpretations of faith and their applications to daily life. During the Enlightenment, religion was increasingly reduced to the private sphere. And then in the post-Enlightenment era, much of the debate turned to whether faith had anything meaningful to say at all regarding the world in which we live. And that gave rise then to a remedial concept of worldview developed in the post-Enlightenment church that promised, as someone put it, a fresh perspective on the holistic nature, cosmic dimensions, and universal application of the faith. But although the concept, the category of worldview is modern, the content of worldview understood from a biblical perspective, is by no means modern. Rooted in the sovereignty of God and in his works of creation and providence and redemption, already the early church fathers debated the dominant philosophies of their time. They attempted to provide the church with a framework within which to view life on this earth. So Irenaeus of Lyons, already in the second century, refuted Gnosticism by initiating an alternative framework for understanding the world. And in doing that, he relied on the Genesis account. Augustine, of course, in his famous City of God in the fifth century, provided the earliest comprehensive worldview framework. But among the reformers, Calvin is certainly cited the most and provided the clearest and most comprehensive worldview. 
Calvin himself said that his theological system provided a, quote, Christian philosophy. The two original worldview thinkers in Protestant evangelicalism in the modern era, James Orr and Abraham Kuyper, both admitted that their views flow from the theological wellsprings of John Calvin. And so today, various dimensions of Calvin's worldview are disclosed in various appeals made to Calvin by different schools of Reformed thinking. Now, the Institutes, of course, define wisdom as the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, clearly stating that the purpose of life for all humans, the law of their being, is to learn to know God. We were just listening to a sermon of Dr. Lloyd-Jones on, on the way to the site here today, and he was actually preaching from Psalm 107, and basically he was stating this Calvinian proposition that this is fun- fundamental to being a Christian. You've got to learn to know God and have this sense of God. Well, for Calvin, this wasn't being mystical. It wasn't being narrowly spiritual. It was to be interwoven in the whole structure of the universe. And Calvin clearly modeled himself that way. Everything he promoted. And he encouraged the study of astronomy, medicine, natural sciences, everything he promoted. He did so in this context that we must know God and know his creation. And so Calvin credited the astonishing discoveries and the invention of so many wonderful arts as sure indications of the agency of God in man. And the failure of man to acknowledge the contribution of men throughout history, even unbelievers, Calvin said, is ingratitude to God. So affirming the world as God's world is a clear starting point for considering Calvin's worldview. But that worldview must never be disassociated from its foundation, which for Calvin is always the Scriptures. Calvin says, Therefore, while it becomes man seriously to employ his eyes in considering the works of God, since a place has been assigned him in this most glorious theater, that he may be a spectator of them, his special duty is ever to give ear to the word that he made the better prophet. I know of no better summary of Calvin's conviction here than has been put by B.B. Warfield. Many of you have heard this many times, no doubt, but let me read it once more. That Calvinist is the man who sees God. God in nature, God in history, God in grace. Everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping. Everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm, the throbbing of his mighty heart. A Calvinist is the man who sees God behind all phenomena and in all that occurs recognizes the hand of God working out his will. The Calvinist makes the attitude of the soul to God in prayer its permanent attitude in all life's activities. And he casts himself on the grace of God alone excluding every trace of dependence on self from the whole work of his salvation. Well, let's look then at these four schools of contemporary Calvinistic thinking to see how they flesh out Calvin's worldview and practice today. 
The first school I want to look at is the Neo-Calvinist perspective. Was seeing God everywhere a mandate to pursue Christian activity in every area of life? Well, Abraham Kuyper said definitely yes. In his definitive stone lectures of his mature thought given at Princeton in 1898, Kuyper described the Calvinist worldview and its logical consequences for Christians in words that have become a kind of a mantra for neo-Calvinists. He said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And taking his lead, neo-Calvinists have labored to create Christian organizations in almost every sphere of life and dedicated themselves to implementing a Christian philosophy of all kinds of things. So Kuiper understood Christianity as a life system that was totally at odds with culture. And given the radically different presuppositions on which cultural activity was based, Kuiper said, we need to form distinctly Christian organizations in every area of life. So the results of this engagement are radically different than the cultural activities pursued by unbelievers. David Noggle uh, writes this, Regenerate people with a Christian worldview produce a roughly theistic interpretation of science, and non-regenerate people with a non-Christian worldview, worldview produce an idolatrous science. While Kuiper carefully nuances his position to avoid absurd conclusions, nonetheless he is clear that the experience of spiritual regeneration which radically alters the content of human consciousness and reshapes worldview, makes a decisive difference in the way the cosmos is interpreted and science is pursued. End quote. So Kuiper's approach has far-reaching implications. According to Richard Niebuhr, in his famous Christ and Culture, the gospel should transform culture. God created all things good. The fall corrupted both man and creation. But redemption is complete. And ultimately, all things will be redeemed. The kingdom of God extends to all spheres of life. Grace restores nature. Even though we will have to wait until the second coming to see it fully realized. Well, that's the neo-Calvinist perspective. What about, secondly, the two kingdom Perspective. Advocates of the two kingdom perspective, such as Daryl Hart, strongly disagree with Kuiper's call to reform every sphere of life. Hart argues that rather than applying faith to every area of life because of a Calvinist worldview, we must rather focus reforming the church, which then will have a direct effect, a trickle-down effect, on economics, politics, and education. But our first intent and foremost religious intent must be the church. And cultural transformation is merely a byproduct of church reform, Hart says. So any attempts to create an integrated Christian system of thought on this side of eternity are really foolish and distract the church from her central calling. The scripture offers some principles that shed light on the public questions of our day. Two kingdom perspective people would say 
there's enough ambiguity that Christians will end up coming to different conclusions on many current issues. And it will just bifurcate them. And so those with a two-kingdom perspective advocate an individual approach to social issues and actually warn against the church taking corporate activity on social issues. And they support themselves by various passages from Calvin. The most famous one being this one. Quote, this is Calvin now, in order that none of us may stumble on that stone, let us first consider there's a twofold government in man. One aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and in reverencing God. The second is political, whereby man is educated for the duties of humanity and citizenship that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and the temporal jurisdiction, not improper terms, by which is meant that the former sort of government pertains to the life of the soul, while the latter has to do with the concerns of the present life. The one we may call the spiritual kingdom, the other the political kingdom. So there are in man, so to speak, two worlds over which different kings and different laws have authority. End quote. So two kingdom advocates do not ascribe Christian to all kinds of opinions or intuitions or institutions. Belief is personal and believers are called to belong to a body of believers known as the Christian church. With a strong ecclesiology approving of Calvin's statement, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. Two kingdom advocates focus on the individual calling of believers to live faithfully as part of the body of Christ in the context of the community in which they live. Now a third perspective we might label the Neo-Puritan, the Neo-Puritan perspective with the rise of the new Calvinism today, particularly in America, or perhaps better called Neo-Puritans, to avoid uh, confusing them with the Neo-Calvinists, issues are being framed in a different manner. The movement of New Calvinism, or as I'm calling it, Neo-Puritanism today, is characterized by a rediscovery of two important doctrines, God's sovereignty and God's glory. And although Neo-Puritanism is a disparate movement, Without coherence of thought on social engagement, its adherents still contribute in their own unique way to the discussion of how is Calvin revolutionary. People in this movement range from a great deal of different church backgrounds with varying ecclesiologies, even including churches that make no pretense of being confessionally reformed. Now, at least two things come forward in the neo-Puritan movement today. A political philosophy that is rooted in a love response. A political philosophy rooted in a love response to the challenges of our time. And secondly, an emphasis on rediscovering transcendence even in the mundane. L. Moeller, president of Southern Baptist, who's transformed actually the whole seminary into a a Calvinist and Reformed institution, which is stunning. The largest uh, seminary, by the way, in the English-speaking world. I think it's 3,500 students. 
Now, Moeller writes, love of neighbor for the sake of loving God is a profound political philosophy that strikes a balance between the disobedience of political disengagement and the idolatry of politics as our main priority. You see, Neo-Puritans believe that in the midst of communities, Christians act as agents of soul and light to bring unbelieving neighbors into the kingdom of God. So Moeller goes on to say, love of neighbor, grounded in our love for God, requires us to work for good in the city of man, even as we set as our first priority the preaching of the gospel, which is the only means of bringing citizens from the city of man into citizenship of the city of God. So cultural engagement is obedient service that brings glory to God, but it is also utilitarian in serving as a means of pre-evangelism. Now, it's not surprising that an approach based on loving one's neighbor has its priorities set by the issues of the day. Whether they're abortion or euthanasia or poverty or civil rights or the environment. Many arguments for personal engagement are based on empathy with victims. Typically, there are references to a worldview that reach back through history to Kelvin, but the response this promotes is primarily diaconal. So a common theme of the neo-Puritan literature is establishing various ministries of mercy that alleviate human suffering and provide the opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Now also strong in the neo-Puritan movement is that Calvin's revolutionary worldview was not something that ought to just affect our intellects, but also our affections. John Piper writes this, My whole project theologically is to say that God is more God-centered than any other being in the universe. And then to back that up with dozens of texts that say that God does everything for his own glory. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. Affections, therefore, are central, not marginal. It's okay to be happy in God. So that relates closely to the second emphasis on Christian social engagement in Neo-Puritanism, namely rediscovering the transcendent in the midst of the mundane. In the introduction to Tolian Chibidian's uh, recent book, Unfashionable, Tim Keller hears, quote, ringing calls to form a distinct, thick Christian counterculture as perhaps the ultimate witness to the presence of the future, the coming of the kingdom. Shavidian says, this witness has less to do with political engagement or evangelistic strategies than living with the people we're trying to reach and showing them what human life and community look like when the gospel is believed and the gospel embraced. And he goes on to argue that's demonstrated in two ways. First, with the spiritual courage to reject dominant cultural trends and to live unfashionably. And second, to live as transplants looking homeward for a new sin-free physical world with new sin-free physical bodies, with new sin-free job responsibilities and personal relationships that believers will one day inherit. And so Chavidian concludes, the world desperately needs the church to be the church, reflecting the kingdom of God, so that those who are lost will know where to turn when their own kingdoms 
begin to collapse. And then finally, you have what I'm calling the old Calvinist perspective, the fourth approach. At various times in the past century, many of these old Calvinists have warned that social engagements they were observing being done by the church were actually harmful for the church. And they base these calls, these convictions, not only on Scripture's mandate to, to love not the world or the things of the world, but also on the teachings of Calvin. Calvin often implied that cultural engagement can lead to worldliness. And that when the church attempts to influence the culture, the culture is often more effective at influencing the church. For example, Kelvin said, As soon as the least ray of hope beams upon us from the world, we are torn away from the Lord and alienated from the pursuit of the heavenly life. And again, Kelvin, The Lord calls all His people, as by the sound of the trumpet, to be wanderers, lest they should become fixed in their nests on earth. So, Calvin says Christians are to be pilgrims. It's interesting that two of the best biographies written this year picked it up as their theme, written independently of each other. The Dutch theologian Herman Selderheis, John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life, and Bob Godfrey from America, writing also with a subtitle about Calvin being a pilgrim. Well, these things lead Calvin to conclude the only way to walk through life happily is to walk holily and harmlessly in the world, in the service, in fear of God. Consider only the political order, said Calvin. Since this world is fallen and liable to the wrath of God, the political order is one way for God to express his wrath. Despite his own act of establishing the state as an instrument to sustain order in the world. If we as citizens are placed under a harsh ruler we should remind ourselves that worldly kings are established by heaven and that because of our own wickedness, we deserve even worse than what we have received. That's a common theme uh, in Calvin, by the way. I think my mother was a good Calvinist that way without even uh, ever reading Calvin. Whenever I complained about something, she'd always say to me, well, it could be worse. <laughs> could be worse. We got what we deserve, it would always be worse. And one time I, I was I was pretty upset with her. I think I was twelve years old and I said to her, You can always say that everything can be worse. And she said, That's right, everything could be worse. <laughs> I said, Well then you can never complain about anything. She said, That's right, you can never complain about anything. <laughs> because everything above hell and death is the mercy of God. Well, this is Kelvin. If, however, we are placed under good and helpful leaders, Calvin said, we ought to be grateful. Grateful for God's providential care and realize that a just and good magistrate is a rarity. Those who receive this gift should pray for their leaders and cultivate life in the fear of God. They should give thanks for the freedom to live a peaceable life in this world, Calvin said. Now, John MacArthur, who takes really the old Calvinist position in this regard, gives four arguments in his writings against all political activism on the part of Christians. This is what he says. Political activism, number one, denigrates the sovereignty of God over human history and events. Number two, uses fleshly and selfish means to promote biblical values. Number three, creates a false sense of morality. 
And number four, risk alienating unbelievers by viewing them as political enemies rather than as a mission field. And so MacArthur concludes, I believe America's heart can be turned toward God, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit, one person at a time. And you and I have at our disposal the only means to bring genuine, lasting change, God's good news of salvation. So use it for the glory of God's kingdom. So promoting godly living and the fruits of the Spirit is a mission far more good, says MacArthur, and profitable to men than any amount of social and political activism. Christians are content very much to let the worldly people deal with the worldly things of this world. Well, now that you're thoroughly confused by these four views, because you see, you see points of truth in all of them, you understand this is not an easy matter of how to transplant Calvin's revolutionary views, worldviews, into our present day and age. And our intent in this paper is not to side with one of the four. But what is clear is that conservative churches today that view themselves as heirs of Calvin's legacy vary tremendously in their view of Calvin as a cultural revolutionary and how his teachings should be applied today. So how do we, how do we integrate? Whichever emphasis we end up taking from these four schools, how do we integrate that with the kind of close walk with God that Calvin is everywhere emphasizing? Or, as he calls it, pietas, piety, which is his focal point in all his writings. Even saying of the Institutes to King Francis, there's only really one reason why I wrote the Institutes, and that is to promote In other words, how do we maintain biblical priorities in a fallen world while seeking to reform human society? Well, to get at that, we need to understand Calvin's comprehensive view of piety and Christian living. Our second major thought. Calvin viewed piety as the major theme of his theology. His piety is inseparable from his theology. John T. McNeil said Calvin's theology is simply his piety described at length. Calvin is determined to confine all theology within the limits of piety as well. For him, piety is simply developing a right attitude toward God. Basically, if you take everything Calvin says, I believe you can work it down to six things, that six perspectives of that attitude that are involved. He says it involves true knowledge, heartfelt worship, saving faith, filial or childlike fear, prayerful submission, and reverential love. So Calvin says knowing who and what God is, which is basically theology, involves right attitudes toward God and doing what he wants which is basically piety. In his first catechism, Calvin wrote, True piety consists in a sincere feeling which loves God as Father as much as it fears and reverences Him as Lord, embraces His righteousness, and dreads offending Him as something worse than death. So piety is this love and this reverence for God that is integrally linked to any knowledge of God and embraces all of life. 
The whole life of Christians, says Calvin, ought to be one unending sort of practice of pietas. So the goal of piety, as well as the entire Christian life, is to glorify God. And the glory of God shines in His attributes. It shines in the structures of the world. It shines in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's shining everywhere for a Christian who has his eyes open to see it. Calvin says, this is so important that glorifying God even supersedes my own personal salvation. A truly pious person doesn't have his be-all and end-all getting saved, but his be-all and end-all is, how shall I glorify God? That's the purpose for which we're created, Calvin says. That's the goal of the regenerate, to live out the purpose of their original creation. Now, how do they do that? Well, Kelvin's answer is this. I quote, God has prescribed for us a way in which he will be glorified by us, namely, piety, which consists in the obedience of his word. He that exceeds these bounds does not go about to honor God, but rather to dishonor him. So what does obedience to God's word mean for Calvin? Well, it means taking refuge in Christ for forgiveness of our sins. It means knowing Him through His Word. It means serving Him with a loving heart. It means doing good works in gratitude for His goodness. It means exercising self-denial to the point of loving our enemies. It means total surrender to God, to His Word, to His will. It means the model of Calvin for which he is most famous. I offer thee my heart, Lord, promptly and sincerely. And that desire, you see, can only be realized, can only be grounded in communion with Christ, in participation in Christ. For outside of Christ, even the most religious person cannot get beyond bare bones morality and can never live for the glory of God. But in Christ, we become willing servants of our Lord, faithful soldiers of our commander, and obedient children of our Father. So for Calvin, Piety is comprehensive. Piety consumes my whole life theologically, ecclesiastically, and practically. Let me look at both or three of these, just, just a quick moment. Theologically. Mystical union with Christ for Kelvin is the starting point for Christian living. Biblical mystical union with Christ. And such union is possible, Kelvin argues, because Christ took on our human nature, filling it with his sinless virtue. That Christ had died and risen, but did not apply his salvation to believers for their regeneration and sanctification, his work would have been ineffectual. Our piety shows that the Spirit of Christ is working in us what Christ has already accomplished for us. And Christ administers, therefore, his sanctification to the church through his royal priesthood so that the church may respond in pious living for him. Now, ecclesiastically, Calvin understood spiritual growth to occur within the context of the church, which he called a nursery for piety. The church is mother, the church is educator, the church is nourisher for every believer, Calvin said, for the Holy Spirit acts in her, cultivating piety through the church's teaching so that the believer may progress from spiritual infancy to adolescence to full manhood in Christ. We do not graduate from the church. 
until we die. This lifelong education in the read and preached word, in the administration of the sacraments, in corporate prayer, and in psalm singing, is offered as an atmosphere of genuine piety, according to Calvin, in which believers love and care for one another under the headship of Christ. And so it's not just a private piety, but it's a corporate piety by which believers, as Calvin puts it, borrow. In fact, he says they are constrained to borrow the gifts from one another so that in areas where they lack, they may become more fulsome in glorifying God, encouraging each other's gifts, encouraging each other's love. Growth in piety is impossible apart from the church, says Calvin, for piety is fostered by the communion of saints. And so within the church, believers cleave to each other in the mutual distribution of gifts. Every member having his own place and using his own gifts within the body of the church. And the church then, ideally, ought to use these gifts in symmetry and proportion, ever reforming, ever moving the whole body toward perfection. Now, it's important to note that for Kelvin, these categories that we always make of private and public really were foreign to him. The notion of an individual existing on his own, free to exercise a kind of voluntarism by joining and then leaving a church as one desires, would have been nonsensical. Union with Christ meant belonging to or union with the body of Christ. And the health of the whole church is affected by the parts, just as the health of the parts affects the whole. So the church is the nursery of piety, corporately, but also individually. And the Christian strives for it because he loves righteousness, because he loves the bride of Jesus, the church, because he longs to live for God's glory, because he delights to obey God's rule of righteousness, set forth in the scripture. So God himself is the focal point of all this. And that is characterized in the believer's life by denying himself for the glory of God. And it comes to expression in Christ-like cross-bearing before the eyes of believers and unbelievers alike. It's amazing how much emphasis Calvin has on self-denial and cross-bearing. Calling it the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christian living. In the book 3, section 6-10 through 10 of the Institutes, he really gives us a useful summary of what he means by living piously in a fallen world. And actually here, he gives us six things. Let me just give them to you very briefly and we'll move on to my last thought. Six things that really are involved in genuine piety and genuine spiritual living in a fallen world. First is, of course, prayer, which he calls the chief exercise of piety. Prayer evidences God's grace, he says, to the believer, even as the believer offers praises to God and asks for his faithfulness. Prayer communicates piety both privately and corporately. The second is repentance. Calvin says repentance is not only a lifelong process for the Christian, it actually is the Christian life. Every day I'm repenting. Every day I'm turning to God. 
Every day I'm mortifying the desires of the flesh. Every day I'm quickened into newness of life. Every day there's mortification and vivification. That desire to live a holy and devoted manner. A desire arising from rebirth, says Calvin. As if it were said that man dies to himself that he may begin to live to God. That dying, living, dying to self, living to God, for Calvin is the heart of repentance. And then thirdly, there is this thing called self-denial. Calvin calls this the sacrificial dimension of piety. In self-denial, we realize that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to God. We live and die according to Him, according to the rule of His Word. So self-denial is not self-centered, as was the case usually in a medieval monasticism. But it's God-centered. Our greatest enemy, therefore, is not the devil nor the world. We don't need to hide ourselves in a monastery. But our greatest enemy is ourselves. Self-denial ignites the desire to seek the things of God throughout our lives, in every area of our lives. It leaves no room for pride, for lasciviousness, for worldliness. It is the opposite of self-love because it is love for God. So self-denial involves a commitment to yield ourselves. Everything we own to God is a living sacrifice. And only then are we prepared, says Calvin, to love others and to esteem them better than ourselves. Fourthly, there is this thing Calvin calls cross-bearing. Self-denial is primarily an inward thing and he says cross-bearing is the outward manifestation of the exercise of self-denial. Those who are in fellowship with Christ must prepare for a hard and toilsome life filled with many kinds of evil, Calvin said. That's a natural outcome of sin's effect on our fallen world. Sin's effect in our own lives. But also it's a natural effect because of our union with Christ. Calvin is very profound here. Basically what he says is this, because Christ's life was a perpetual cross, our life, which must be lived behind him in his shadow, he enduring the substance, we the shadow, must also be a series of sufferings. So we not only participate in the benefits of Christ's atoning work on the cross, but we also experience, as we follow in Christ's shadow, the Spirit's work of transforming us through cross-bearing into the very image of Christ. So cross-bearing tests our piety, Calvin said. And basically, if you bring together everything he says about cross-bearing, it's really four things, he says. Through cross-bearing, we are roused to hope. We are trained in patience. We are instructed in obedience. And we are chastened in pride. What a beautiful theology of cross-bearing. Roused to hope. Trained in patience. Instructed in obedience. Chastened in pride. Cross-bearing, says Calvin, is our medicine. It teaches us the feebleness of our flesh. It teaches us to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Where would you be, brothers, if you never had any crosses in your life? Where would you be spiritually? You'd be proud. You'd be self-sufficient. You wouldn't be a broken person living out of the grace of God. You see, Calvin says, cross-bearing God uses to transform our sufferings so that we might be recipients of his blessing. The fifth thing 
for Calvin is a thing he calls the present and the future life. And let me just state it as simply as I can. What he really brings together here is a, a device in Latin called the complexio oppositorum, where you take two opposite extremes of an issue and present both extremes, and then you bring them together and you walk the middle way in moderation. And that's what Kelvin does with his present and future life concept. What he, what he does is he says basically this. When it comes to the present life, the one extreme is this. This present life is nothing but a sepulcher compared to the life to come. It's full of shadows, full of clouds. It's dark. It's sinful. Any Christian that doesn't hanker for the second coming of Jesus and long to be with him has made very little progress in the Christian life, he says. But that's a pretty dark picture. A pretty intense picture. But on the other hand, he says, the other extreme is that only a Christian can enjoy this world. Because a Christian sees that everything he receives from God is indeed from the right hand of God's favor through Jesus Christ. Merited for him by Christ. So, in today's terms, if he looks at his car, he looks at his house, he looks at his wife, he looks at his children, he says, these are all the gifts of God to me, to be used for God's glory, and he can enjoy them as an unbeliever never can. But Calvin says, because of sin, because this world is nothing compared to the next, because it's a shadow, a sepulcher compared to the next, you don't get too giddy as you enjoy this life's uh, possessions and you surrender them to God. But you remember that you're still living in the midst of sin. And so you bring these two things together and you walk circumspectly in moderation to the glory of God. And then finally, Obedience. Obedience, sixthly. Calvin says unconditional obedience to God's will is the essence of piety. Piety links love and freedom and discipline by subjecting all to the will and to the word of God. Love is the overarching principle that prevents piety from degenerating into legalism. But at the same time, law provides the content for love. And so piety includes rules that govern the believer's response. But those rules take the form of self-denial and cross-bearing. Those rules make us be disciplined in the Christian life. Not in a legalistic way, but because we want to gratefully obey our Savior whom we love. And so Calvin says, when we pursue this obedience, we are like a distance runner. We are like a diligent scholar. We are like a heroic warrior. Fighting the good fight of faith. Running the good race. Eager to search the scriptures as a man searching for hid treasure. Well, let's summarize then where, where we're at. Calvin's teaching on piety in Christian living in Interfacing with engaging our culture brings us to seven points, brief points. And then I'm going to look at some contemporary implications, three contemporary implications. First of all, cultural engagement 
must be understood in the context of a believer's personal relationship with God. It flows out of a believer's relationship with God, says Calvin, and never exists independently from that relationship. So the indicative, if I may put it that way, always precedes the imperative. Not only in our practice, but also in our articulation of our public theology. Number two, Calvin always discusses the Christian life comprehensively. He doesn't divide the natural from the spiritual world. He's not two Calvins. He demands obedience in all of life. In Calvin's spirituality, actually natural things become spiritual. Theologically, ecclesiastically, practically, Calvin was a man who strove to do what was right. To live what he taught. To live for the glory of God. Number three, a believer's relationship to God is the highest priority of life. Calvin warns everywhere against worldliness, doesn't he? And falling into temptation. He said that keeping an unspoiled conscience, maintaining spiritual disciplines are a higher priority than social engagement. Number four, the institutional church plays a central role in a believer's spiritual growth. The church has preeminence over every other social institution. But it is preeminence in importance, not preeminence in hierarchical authority. Number five, life itself, as well as social engagement, results in cross-bearing. Calvin views cross-bearing not only as problems to be overcome, but more so as God's providence to teach us necessary lessons to draw us close to God. Number six, although the world has fallen and under divine punishment, God's providence prevents it from falling into utter chaos. And since the world still has remnants of good, the Christian should strive for its betterment betterment from out of the context of pious living. And number seven, of course, Calvin says, as we look at the issues of the day, as we put our hand to work in all cultural areas of life for the glory of God, we must do so in the context of eternity and in anticipation of future glory. Well, that leads me then to the conclusion of contemporary implications. Our intent here this morning is not to interject Calvin into a modern discussion and assign him to a particular school of thought. Every one of the four schools we've looked at has elements of of truth in it. Part of the problem today is that we're dealing in a post-Cartesian mode of discussion where the evidence and tools of debate used in academic and social and political discussions are vastly different. Gerald Bilkus reminds us, the Cartesian revolution prized knowledge that could be empirically verified and under this new definition of science, Piety was not welcome. So Calvin used debating methods of his days to explain how Christians are to live in a fallen world that are very different from debating methods in our day. So from our perspective, and our debating methods, we look back at Calvin, and it appears as if there's two Calvins involved in our debate. The Neo-Calvinist says the fundamental presuppositions underlying the debate need to be changed if we're going to have meaningful engagement. The two-kingdom perspective 
responds, that won't happen. When we try to engage in discussion, we end up calling things Christian that really aren't Christian, and it only results in pride and misrepresenting the gospel. The Neo-Puritan says, that is why we should avoid a systemic approach. We should focus more on individual needs of our neighbors and show them in ministries of mercy and by positive examples that faith makes a difference. And the old Calvinists say, in all of this activity, we're losing our focus and we're getting dirty as we dig around in the garbage cans of culture to retrieve a penny or two of value from the bottom. We and our culture need heart surgery, not band-aids. Now, the overlapping themes here that emerge from Kelvin's writings actually do help us apply Kelvin's legacy to our culture today. And I want to just give you three major themes to stimulate more of your own thinking. When it comes to Kelvin's revolutionary worldwide thinking and his personal, private, pietistic living and the merging of the two, the two get merged by the overriding theme, number one, of the glory of God. This brings them together. The supreme purpose of knowledge and piety are not to achieve something great, something such as the discovery of creation's potential, not even something great like the salvation of a soul. Even that all is secondary to the supreme purpose of the glory of God. Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Therefore, brethren, surrender your whole lives to God and live for His glory. This God-centeredness of Romans 11.33 to 12.2 that was read. The God-centeredness of the Psalms like Psalm 145 that cites inspiration for living by seeking out the works of God. All of this is done for the glory of God. And although the imperfection of the saints means that the works done by humans often have destructive effects, even as are some of the works of God in nature after the fall having destructive effects, such as hurricanes and tornadoes, that destruction does not give us reason to deny the hand of God in history or to cease to admire His glory. Our theology, Calvin would teach us, should expect tension in this fallen world between the now and the not yet. And so the God-glorifying aspects of both the now and the not yet were not only Calvin's focus, but ought to be ours as well. And the same question ought to be our question. How can we dedicate every area of our lives to the glory of God? The second theme that merges the two is Kelvin's teaching on eschatological hope. Eschatological hope. God's purposes, even when revealed in time, said Kelvin, direct us to their full achievement in eternity. Although the refiner's fire will burn off the dross so radically that the purified gold will be beyond our recognition, its beauty will transcend our greatest expectations. So our actions on earth are tangible reminders of the glorious expectation that awaits the child of God. So much of the worldview literature today uses the threefold categorization of creation, fall, and redemption. And that's well and good, and it does ultimately include everything. But I think 
in Calvin's way of thinking. It would include creation, fall, salvation in time, and then restoration, total restoration in eternity. Not only for the glory of the saints, but also for the glory of God, even in the damnation of the reprobate who are justly condemned. The fourfold categorization of a worldview in Calvin's mind would include God's punishment against sin. It would include incentives for holiness in our day as we await the great day. It would include the urgency of evangelism and mission to every unconverted person in the world. And it would include the Heidelberg Confession statement that in body and soul and life and death I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the merging of a radical revolutionary view in Calvin and a personal pietistic daily Christian life comes together in this eschatological hope that we're serving God in every sphere of life in anticipation of that one day, that great day, when we as believers will reign with Him and serve with Him throughout all of the heavens and the earth to His glory. And finally, the third observation comes from the very exercise itself. You see, it's so easy for us to, to think in categories. And there's nothing wrong with that. Calvin was an excellent systematician and he certainly thought in categories as well. But what we divide in two parts in order to think in terms of categories really in Calvin is one part. The churchmen and the statesmen are one. His thinking is integrated. He doesn't separate the individual believer from the church, loving God from loving one's neighbor, or God's command to serve him with the soul as well as the body. It's all one in Calvin. Calvin's worldview has an impregnable unity about it. There's no sacred and secular divide in his thinking. Though he does give priority to preaching and to worship. But according to Calvin, all Christians are to glorify Christ in every aspect of their lives. So there is a biblical mandate for artistic endeavor, providing that such efforts distance themselves from sinful worldliness. And even as we long for the world to come, we are to value this life and this world, not simply regarding it as a waiting room for the second coming. Well, that offers us important lessons for today, doesn't it? Our doctrine, our piety, our worldview are not separate categories, but they're integrated. The one shaping the other. The church is not a private institution serving simply as a refueling station to energize its members to engage with this world or as a shelter to hide them from their obligations. The church is the bride of Christ who is preparing for the bridegroom's great return. How must she prepare herself? Well, she must get ready by proclaiming sound doctrine and boldly, without shame, speaking the truth about her beloved, by adorning herself with holiness so that she's an example all throughout society of the riches of grace from the one who's adorned her with his own righteousness. And by reaching out in love to demonstrate that the love of God and the love of neighbor are inseparable 
and by waiting with anticipation till her bridegroom comes again, the church prepares herself for the coming again of Jesus. Well, Calvin's comprehensive piety was revolutionary in his day. Really what he did was he helped Christians across Europe to understand piety in terms of everyday living. He removed it from an exclusive monastery and he brought it out into the warp and woof of everyday life. And so through Calvin's influence, the typical believer who followed his teaching will be able to say of him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I must present my body, my soul, my body, my whole being as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is only my reasonable service. So through Calvin's influence, reformed spirituality, focused on how to live the Christian life in family, in the fields, in the workshop, in the marketplace. And that was revolutionary. And this spirituality was, in turn, fleshed out by the Puritans, who became even more intense than Calvin in teaching how to live wholly to God in every area of life, every minute of every day. May God help us so to live, to merge, and to be Christians living in a fallen world who have a revolutionary view of bringing all things under the umbrella of Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.